Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, JOSPT Senior Editor Professor Brian Heiderscheidt from University of Wisconsin-Madison joins me to share his take on the best and most clinically relevant research on managing hamstring injuries. As we launch into 2021, what better time to refresh your memory or perhaps catch up on some recent hamstring injury research that you might have missed? Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Brian. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on, particularly in your role as one of the senior editors for JOSPT. Today, we're aiming for a kind of research roundup. So we're trying to help folks stay on top of the masses of terrific hamstring injury research that's going to help them help the athletes that they work with. Brian, can I ask you to set the scene for us by sharing why we should care so much about hamstring injuries? Yeah, absolutely. Odds are that somebody you know had one at some point in time. I mean, they're they're that common, especially at the professional and collegiate level. Being so common automatically adds a cost tag. It raises a lot of questions in our minds of both how are we able to potentially prevent these injuries? How can we prevent the recurrence of the injuries, which gets back to how do we rehab them? Uh, and are there ways that we can ensure that we minimize the athlete's chances of sustaining any sort of long-term time away from sport due to these injuries? Folks in our community are doing their best to stay on top of the research, marrying that best research evidence with their clinical practice and listening to the context and the goals of the athlete as well in that traditional evidence-based practice framework that we're all really familiar with. Now, you've brought five great papers to share with us that are relatively recently published in the last five or six years. In a sense, we're aiming to help folks level up their clinical skills in managing hamstring injuries. So let me start by throwing the first paper to you, Brian. We're very proud to have published this paper in JOSPT. The paper comes from Jack Hickey and his colleagues at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. They were looking at pain-free versus pain threshold rehabilitation following acute hamstring strain injury, and it was a randomised controlled trial. In 60 seconds, Brian, can you share what makes this paper so good? Absolutely. This is a no-brainer. Any any of the work that comes out of David Opar's team's group, and Jack is certainly a strong member of that, is is really advanced the field and hamstring strain injury work. He's really getting after trying to say, how do we progress the rehabilitation exercises and loading on individuals with the hamstring strain injuries? There's a little rule of thumb that we always try to stave away from pain. Pain-free is our goal. And Jack designed a nice trial to say, well, we could either implement it as pain-free or we could implement it as pain-controlled, where it's at a level that the patient can can tolerate, um, but is certainly not at a pain-free level. And so if we introduce those loads that might you know, right beyond that border of pain uh, or, you know, of, of, of too much pain potentially. Are there any adverse events that occur? Do they re-injure? Does it aggravate the condition? Does it delay their return to play or speed it up? Uh, and he really nicely showed that there are some potential advantages to pushing the, the speed at which you progress loading in these individuals. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important consideration for clinicians planning rehabilitation programs and helping athletes plan return to sport as well. Can you delve into a bit more detail and talk us through how you see clinicians being able to use these results tomorrow in clinical practice? Absolutely. The key thing is we want to make sure that people still respect the pain. The pain is there for a reason. We don't want to ignore it. We just want to make sure that we're not giving it too much weight in our our decision-making on how we progress. The, The rule of thumb that, and the way I take away from the paper and what I use with my patients is telling them it's okay if you experience a three out of 10 or a four out of 10 pain. That's okay. Uh, we're going to you know, control the load or the range of motion or the exercise parameters in some way that that's the ceiling that you'll experience. And each time we're going to try to push it. If Essentially, if there's no pain, that's okay. That doesn't mean that you need to have pain in the exercise to see some uh, advantages from happening, but it also doesn't mean that we need to completely avoid that pain speed of return is so important for these athletes because right this is an athletic injury and many occur in season when the athlete needs to get back on the field and the sooner we can do that the faster we can progress them the happier the patient is of course the happier the coaches are and hopefully we don't put them at a risk where of re-injury as, as a consequence of getting them back faster Yeah, and I think one of the questions that athletes, patients often have is whether it's okay to exercise into pain or how much can I push before I do damage. So what sorts of messages do you take from this paper to your own clinical practice when you're talking with athletes about finding that sweet spot with loading the tissue enough to get some response versus too much and pushing things backwards? Yeah, it's it's a conversation we have at the very beginning, just like we do when we're talking about like an athlete with a with a tendon injury, right? You want to you want to introduce the athlete to what sort of rehab is going to happen because they're in it for the longer haul. It's the same way with with this sort of situation. The rehab may be compressed and condensed because of the recovery timeline of this injury. But we still want to set the stage for them to understand and appreciate that, yes, they do have some inflammation. Yes, there's going to be episodes of pain. The pain will actually resolve fairly quickly. The loading will help uh, restore the muscle parameters, the muscle architecture, the the strength that we need uh, fairly quickly without compromising any of the structure. The other thing, whenever we're reading research, Brian, as you know, is to think about who the athletes are or who the population is. Can you share a little bit about who the athletes were who were included in this study and what implications that might have for us as clinicians? Yeah, so so Jack recruited from the general population of his community, so primarily from sporting clubs and at sports injury clinics. So it could have been a wide range of individuals, but nonetheless, those who are pretty actively involved. You know, the age range, if I remember right, was between, say, 18 and 40s, uh, which again is typically where we see these injuries is in the young adult to early adult uh, population. In terms of how does this apply to other populations, I think you know, for the general recreational athlete, it's it makes a lot of sense to be able to go this timeline because the the urgency to return may be a little less so than say at the the high school athlete in particular or the collegiate athlete or certainly the professional athlete. 
And in those situations, again, I think this idea of pain or pain avoidance, I'm not sure there really is any difference based on the population of why you would need to treat one population different. Um, so in that sense, I think the the application of trying to use a minimum pain approach is perfectly acceptable regardless of the population. Let's move to our second paper. We're moving now, taking a little detour to Holland, to Erasmus, the Erasmus Institute in Rotterdam. Hus Rerink and his team, led particularly by Hans Toll, they've done a lot of work with imaging. We're heading back to 2015, looking at magnetic resonance imaging in acute hamstring injury and whether the MRI findings can help us make a prognosis about return to play. What makes this paper so good? If, if I didn't include some of their work, boy, I'd, I'd be, it'd be short of a top five kind of thing. <laughs> so, And the, the other reason I really wanted to bring this work in was because the role of imaging in muscle injury, in a particular hamstring strain injury, has is still an ongoing area of debate. This was a nice review that I think set the stage for, do we need it to be able to prognosticate the person's time away from play and their potential for re-injury? So again, we have to think back to even a decade or longer ago when an MRI was obtained and the radiologist or the, the, the clinician would pull it up and they would grade it very qualitatively. And from that qualitative grade, they would say, oh, this looks like like a big one, right? Or, oh, this looks like they'll be back within a couple of days uh, or maybe a couple of weeks. And invariably, they were wrong. And if you look at a lot of the, the studies on it that have tried to say, can you predict this window? You know, the, the standard deviations around the, the times end up being plus or minus 10 days, you know, which again, when you think about the, the timeline of a recovery of an injury, that's that's not helpful at all. You'd have to be able to narrow it down to within a day or two to really have some value. So that's what I think was what they were bringing to the table here is if we look at all the breadth of the MRI work and the cost associated with this, are we any farther ahead by getting that image, by getting that scan? Does that advance our ability to get the player back on the field? So what would your advice be to the clinician tomorrow? Get the scan or don't get too stressed about the scan? Yeah. So I would say at this point, don't get too stressed about the scan from the prognostic ability standpoint. I think that there have been a a couple of papers that even have compared a good physical examination by an experienced clinician against the MRI and showed that the, the examination is as good, if not better than the MRI. So in the end, you can save quite a bit of cost by eliminating that piece. Now, I want to add though, I don't think that means that MRI is not of value in these injuries. I think it absolutely can play the right role if you're on the fence about, you know, are we dealing with a, an avulsion or a complete tear and a rupture and you need to get that uh, documentation to, to verify it? Or if even some of the new advanced imaging, there's some stuff that even we've been playing with in our lab, looking at quantitative imaging techniques that are based on the MRI, that, that's a whole other area that has not been addressed at all and is untapped. I'm really glad you bring up that point about 
the value of imaging. Here we're specifically talking about using imaging to make a prognosis about return to sport when the injury is very early on in the recovery process. And it may be that imaging has some value, as you say, for other doing other things or at different points in time. One of the challenges that people always bring up when we have these discussions about imaging, particularly if they're working in elite sport, is that they say, well, yeah, but I, I have to get the imaging because the coach expects it and the player expects it and sometimes the player's agent expects it. How do we get around that kind of stuff? Oh boy, I don't know if we do get around that stuff. <laughs> That's it's there, and we have to deal with it, and and we deal with it here at at the at the collegiate level. Uh, you know, when you have the injury, then not all of them are imaged, but you know, if they're if it's a if it's a higher level athlete, if it's one of the star uh, athletes, they tend to collect every bit of information they possibly can, whether the, the science supports it or not, just in the idea that they they're might be able to, to provide better insight. And certainly the professional level uh, is even at a higher, higher utilization rate with MR and other types of imaging. So I'm not sure we get around it as much as we can certainly try to educate uh, the the coaches, the players, and so forth, to really uh, say what what imaging can offer and where the value of it is, but try to avoid making too much off of or out of it, rather, in terms of prognosticating the the time away from play. And I think that's an important message for us when we're speaking with our clinician colleagues as well, because often we're working in multidisciplinary teams where there might be a few physios or there might be athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coaches. And if we're all on that same page and we're all thinking about using imaging in a judicious way, then I think that's going to be helpful for everyone. Absolutely. All right, let's move to paper number three here. We're coming back to the Australian Catholic University team here. This time we're looking at a systematic review from 2017. Jack Hickey again was the lead author. Jack's been very busy. We're looking at criteria for progressing rehabilitation and determining return to play clearance following a hamstring strain injury. So we're really getting into the nitty gritty here of the return to sport testing and return to sport criteria. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds again. Why is this one such a great paper? This truly is because of the topic. Uh, and the the topic in particular is about how to progress rehab, which of course we then uh, had Jack's other paper that addressed that really nicely through the trial. But it was the other part of this review that makes me always go back to and is, is determining return to play clearance. This has been a recurring issue and thinking about how do we determine what that threshold is to get that player back to play to reduce the re-injury risk. And when we're talking re-injury risk and hamstring strain injuries, it's, you know, it can be as upwards, upwards of 30% re-injury rate. So making sure that we do our due diligence and have very strict test criteria to say once an athlete is ready to go back is really imperative, not only for the health of the athlete, but also in terms of having objective data to be able to combat any sort of other pressures that may be coming in to get the athlete back on the field as soon as possible, right? We want to, we want to be our patient advocate, our athlete's advocate, and make sure that we are, are uh, doing right by them. Absolutely. Now, please, Brian, you've got to put me out of my misery. What are the return to sport criteria that Jack and his team suggest in this terrific systematic review? 
they definitely show that there's not a good list of consistency among prior work. And basically they, just, they raise the flag saying, hey, we need to get our act together here, people, and start coming up with some strict criteria. You know, so much of it ends up being very simple manual muscle testing, which we all know has, is wrought with error and, and uh, subjectivity to it. Uh, but nonetheless, that seems to be what's commonly done. Or there may be some measures related to a range of motion of a maximum active knee extension test uh, where you try to put the the hamstring on maximum strain and see if there's any resistance to it. There's other tests uh, such as the Askling test or the H-test, looking at apprehension during a ballistic movement. And while some of them work, they're not necessarily used consistently enough for us to have confidence that they are the right parameters to use. So there's a lot of other pieces that need to be put into the mix that's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. So what would your recommendations be to clinicians out there listening, thinking, oh, what do I do? I'm you know, trying to manage these hamstring injuries the best that I can. The research is not giving me a really clear picture. What would your recommendations be for return to sport tests, Brian? Don't give up on what you're doing, number one, because frankly, we don't have clear list of ones you should 100% go to. But we, we know the areas that need to be tested. We want to make sure they've got good range of motion. And so doing a maximum active knee extension test works well for that. Number two, we, you have to have some sort of strength assessment up for sure. Uh, and there's a lot of ways that can be done. And frankly, there's no real strong evidence that suggests one is any better than another. But we know the eccentric demand is high on the hamstrings at the time of injury most often. So some sort of an eccentric strength test, whether that's a, a Nordic hamstring curl. Third, you've got to have some sort of a running assessment. And I'm not talking qualitative or or 3D mechanics, even in terms of quantity, but effort. You know, what's what's their typical pre-injury speed? Can they get back to 70%, 80%, 90%, 95% is, uh, of their prior uh, speed? Uh, for certain distances without any apprehension and without any concern of of stiffness or or pain during the event. You mentioned Nordic hamstring exercises. So I'm going to use that as our segue into paper number four, which is looking at Nordic hamstring exercises in injury prevention programs and looking at how effective these types of exercises can be. Again, we're looking at a systematic review with a meta-analysis, eight, almost eight and a half thousand athletes. So, you know, it's a really, we're getting a really strong data set now of these types of injury prevention programs. Nicol van Dyke, whom many in our community will know from his work at Aspatar Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Hospital, he's now with Irish Rugby. Nicol was the lead on this systematic review along with Rod Whiteley, who is also someone whom many of our community will be familiar with. What makes this paper so good, Brian? The key one is that we're always wanting to know, is there any most effective way to manage the condition or to prevent the injury? So again, this isn't necessarily for re-injury risk, but looking at primary injury. So if you're looking at some sort of a, a, a mass prevention approach, you don't have the, the luxury oftentimes of doing, taking a very individualistic uh, strategy to it. You've got to do something that's, that is a bit one-size-fits-all. And in this case, the Nordic hamstring exercise is one that's gotten a lot of attention over the years and and has made its way into a lot of different injury prevention programs that have been used in different scenarios, specifically to hamstring strain injury risk, doesn't work. And so the, the review and the meta-analysis 
ultimate conclusion, yeah, you know, when, when done, uh, and when we'll we'll revisit that point, I'm sure, in the conversation, but when done, it, it works, right? There's an overall injury risk reduction of about 0.5, which is pretty tremendous, and the confidence interval is reasonably tight around that number, so it it does work. You're a podcast host's dream interview subject because you've just led me beautifully into the next question, which is how do we get these people to do or these athletes to do the exercise program? And I think one of the biggest things, is, at least at the at the collegiate setting, which is I'm very familiar with, and certainly at the professional level as well, you have to have 100% buy-in from your coaches. You're, they're the ones who are going to implement it, and they're going to hold the athletes accountable for doing it. So that that needs to be part of the process as who's 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 making the ask, and that there is is accountability in, in performing the exercises. That's number one. Number two. The athlete has to be made well aware. If they've never done them before, which by this point in time you'd think most have at some point, but if they've never done them before, they need to be they need to realize they're going to get sore, and that soreness is okay. It's perfectly part of the process and is natural and is necessary. There are well-established nine, ten-week graded progressive programs on Nordic hamstring exercise that very effectively work to to make the muscle modifications that we target and to to reduce the injury risk as as a consequence of it. Are these programs something that you would do in the preseason only, Brian, or are you looking to implement them through a whole season? And how how would you set it up? Preseason meaning like training camp when when the when the effort levels really start to to elevate, it's actually too late, right? We want to do this almost more toward the off season, not early off season, but but late off season before they're going to start to really ramp their workload in anticipation of the season. So get them on that you know multi week eight nine ten week program. So when they hit their their training camp and into their season. They've already got all of the muscle modifications and the, the benefits of the exercise program behind them, essentially. But the most critical piece to it is completion of the eight-week program, nine, ten-week program, is not the end of your, your life with Nordics, right? That just means you've got through that initial phase, and now you've got to keep your exposure to Nordics just doing the Nordics three sets of eight once a week is enough to maintain all of those beautiful changes that you had and you put your effort into that eight to 10 week program where you were doing it two to three times a week. And that I think is where we see a lot of the implementation fall apart is they might do them for a period of time and then all their effort goes into the season or to the training camp and that drops off. Within a week or two, a lot of those architectural changes to the muscle that occurred from the exposure to the Nordics are gone. So it's not only getting people to do it, it's getting them to start the program and then continue it on, build it into part of their usual training and preparation. That's exactly right. And again, whether you need to do it team-wide versus selecting those that are most high risk for the, for the injury on the team, uh, you can go at it either way. And I think we could have a whole podcast talking about that. Let's finish off with a bit of your favorite subject, running, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about a paper that was published in the Journal of Science and Medicine in Sport in 2018. Shane Malone is the lead author. He's He works a lot with the Gaelic Athletic Association Dublin. And Tim Gabbett, whom I'm sure people will be familiar with Tim's work. Tim was also a guest on the JOSPT Insights podcast in one of our earlier episodes 
Here, we're looking at high-speed running and sprinting as an injury risk factor in soccer. What makes this such a great paper, Brian? Well, with hamstring strain injuries, we know that high-speed running and sprinting is one of the most common mechanisms of the injury, or that that's, that that's when the injury most often occurs. And so because of that, the, the unique loads that occur during high-speed running on the hamstring muscle, that's one of those things that we want to make sure that the athlete is exposed to in advance of a game where they've got to do it, but making sure that they're not exposed to it too much because it is one of those high-risk activities. Some of our lab group about a decade plus ago did a lot of the early biomechanical modeling work to say what sort of loads are on the hamstring muscle during running. And if you're running at 80% of your max versus 90 versus 95 and 100, and we know that there's an exponential increase in load on the hamstring with that sort of change in speed range. So how then do you effectively implement a running training program, a high-speed running training program in a way that you can reduce injury risk is something that we're all very interested in. Brian, what would your recommendations be for folks who are trying to manage, or sorry, for folks who are trying to monitor hamstring load in the clinic or in the in the field? Yeah, so the best thing we can do at the field at this point is a lot of groups are using some sort of a wearable sensor, whether it's a GPS tracker or something similar to it. We're still putting the pieces together for it. We don't have a really good algorithm as of yet. Some groups have started to use that, but it's a little premature to say that we've got the solid evidence behind it yet to say what, how those systems can be used as an injury reduction way. Yeah, and the thing that always intrigues me is thinking about how much are these systems measuring cardiovascular load and kind of overall load versus if we're interested in specific load on the tissue and trying to figure out, is this tissue healed? Does it have sufficient capacity to cope with the demands of the sport? Or perhaps that doesn't matter. What would you what would you suggest there? Yeah, I think it does matter. Um, and in fact, this this is a big area of interest that we're involved in right now, trying to better predict exactly that, um, you know, at the individual level. So instead of saying, you know, our earlier work was on, on a general biomechanical assessment, say on average, these are the types of loads when you're running straight, but what happens when you're on the, on the field? And what happens if you had a prior injury and your muscle morphology is different? You know, you've got some weakness in this particular muscle. Are you going to compensate? Or what happens if your running mechanics are such because of your posture when you run that puts a, a bigger strain on the, on your hamstring muscle versus say your your the, the other athlete on your on your a team who plays the same position as you so it, you may be a completely different uh, injury risk models basically given your your own individual morphology structure running mechanics i think you've alluded to some really important work that's coming in in the future and what folks can look forward to in the future. Brian, it's been wonderful having you share these five papers with our community today. Thanks for taking the time to join us on JOSPT Insights. It's been wonderful hearing your passion and expertise on managing hamstring injuries. Oh, thanks, Claire. Really appreciate the opportunity to come on. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app.
If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Bye.